Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Um, I'm new here. My name is John. I'm just kidding. I haven't preached in a while, so uh, I still work here. I'm still part of the church. Um, anyway, uh, we are going to be in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Timothy. Um, if you need to, look in the table of contents. That's legit still. It's fine. No big deal. If you don't have a Bible, look underneath you and grab one of these little uh, blue and white ones, and you can keep that. It's totally yours. Take it forever. Um, if you have one at home and just forgot it, still take it and give it to someone. Uh, we want you to give those away. So we're going to be, as I said, in Second Timothy um, today, and uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll we'll jump in. So you can you can turn while I pray if you want, or close your eyes if you're special, special holy. Let me let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this time that we can gather together corporately. We know that um, gathering together corporately in the same room um, by the power of the Spirit, singing corporately together and being under your word together is not <clears throat> just a, another thing that we do. Instead, there's much power in it. Uh, it's something you've designed that we do, gather together weekly and be under the word. And so we pray that this week would be no different that even though maybe we've, we've done this several times in our lives and it can become rote, it can become routine, that we wouldn't allow today to be that. But instead, God, um, we would even now say, God, come now and do something mightily in my mind, in my heart, in my soul. Change me and sanctify me the places that I need. And if, God, there's people here that don't know you, I pray, God, that you would come now and save them. Regenerate their hearts to see and understand and know the beauties of Christ and what he's done on the cross. I pray that you would help me, God, keep Jesus on the forefront of everything. And, uh, Lord, I, I just confess my inadequacy to be able to preach your word. As I know the text today that I'm going to preach, that you desire a clean, holy uh, teacher, and none of us fall into that category, but because of Christ, we are. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would come now and empower me by the Spirit to speak your word. Pray for everyone here that you open their hearts and minds to receive your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, today we're in um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And the title of uh, the, the entire sermon series we're doing as we're going through 2 Timothy is entrusted. You can see it up here, entrusted. I know that you can't read this because it's Greek. Kai ah hamaku sapar emu. Like you're saying, what does that say? Well, that's okay. You probably wondered the entire time, uh, but I'm gonna go ahead and tell you. If you want to know what that says and you don't read Greek, which I'm assuming none of us do, um, except for maybe two of you who are in seminary, uh, if you go to Second Timothy chapter two, verse two, that's it. So that that's. We picked that particular verse and put it up there because 2 Timothy 2.2 really kind of captures the whole idea of everything we're looking at whenever we're studying the entire book of 2 Timothy. If you look at it, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul telling Timothy, he says, Timothy, what you have learned from me. So Paul told Timothy, he goes, Timothy, I want you then in the presence of many witnesses. So let, tell those people that they will entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you can see there's at least four generations of disciples being made 2,000 years ago that Paul is exhorting Timothy to do. So here's the, here's the key. Don't miss this. It worked. That's why we're here. 
That's why we are in America underneath the word right now. So when we read 2 Timothy 2.2 and we say, hey, you know what? Paul's telling Timothy he's been entrusted with the gospel, so he's supposed to entrust it to people that were entrusted. What, that, what happened was it actually worked. So we know this works. And so based on that, based on this being the word of God, and, and it's clear that it works, we are now, as that verse says, people who are um, Christians who have been now entrusted with the gospel. Therefore, just like Paul tells Timothy, in the same kind of way, we're supposed to, those who have been entrusted with the gospel, go entrusted to other men that they may teach and preach also. So as we're looking at this book, Second Timothy, uh, and we're talking about this idea of being entrusted, this is directly towards us. This, this entire series is for every single person in this room, even though this is Second Timothy. Now, if you're familiar with New Testament layout and structure, etc., First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, those are known as the pastoral letters, letters to pastors. And so the, the easy thing would say, oh, okay, this is Paul just writing to Timothy. So I'm really hoping that Fudd and Jack, that's the elders or pastors of the church, and at least maybe the community group leaders are listening because it's for them. But for me, this is the pastoral letters. It's not for me. That's, that's, not, that's not the case, okay? I want you to realize that what you're going to hear today no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, this is probably um, one of the most important things you're going to hear all day. This is definitely for you. So let's go ahead and um, set the scene. I, I haven't gotten to preach at all at Second Timothy, and I've been dying to set the scene, just dying. So I can't wait. So here, I want you to realize, this is what's going on. This is Paul, a pastor, who gave his life, who we know um, was beaten, he was uh, shipwrecked. He was stoned. He, like, not in the biblical kind of sense where they throw rocks, you know, not. So he, like, he, he had all kinds of terrible things. Happen. Some of you are getting it right now. So, like, he, uh, he had all kinds of things happen to him that were terrible. And the whole reason that happened was because he was willing to give his life for the gospel. So he went on three missionary journeys. He wrote half of the New Testament. And so if this man that lives that kind of radical life is going to, at the end of his life, because he, we know in this particular, uh, in this particular <clears throat> um, book, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul is well aware, at any moment, Timothy, I am going to be killed for the faith. If that kind of man is wanting to, in the very end of his, I mean, he knows he's about to die. This is like these are my last thoughts as a believer that's been radically living for Jesus. I would, I, would, I would argue probably much more than us. If these are his last thoughts that he's going to say, certainly I want to listen to that. I mean, huh, this guy's going to say something. And we need to realize, like, I picked this graphic. Uh, one of our, our, our guys that, that goes here, he's now a graphic designer in Greenville. I called him Morgan Reynolds. He made it for us. And so, you know, think of it as Dungeony and Paul. He's writing letters to Timothy. And so he, he made the graphic and exactly what we want. But don't, don't let this kind of fool you. Paul's not, you know, lighting a candle, reading a couple books, and, and he's surrounded with walls, and he's like, oh, what, what are my last thoughts? That's not the case, even though this is what we picked. Here's what's going on. Paul <clears throat> is down in a hole. They dug about an eight-foot hole, and they threw him down in a hole. And that's it. He probably doesn't have a coat or a blanket. He's cold. He's freezing. It's not like today where you got, you know, air conditioning and ESPNs in prison or whatever. Like today, here, he's just down in a hole, stuck down there. Maybe has just a couple last pieces of parchment. It's not like he's got paper just 
running out. Like we can just run to Walmart and buy a big ream or something, right? Just a couple last pieces. What are some of the last things I want to say with these last pieces of paper? I'm freezing. Only when the daylight comes can I write these things. When it's dark, I can't see anything. And after I finally get it written, I'm probably going to have to ask one of these prisoner guards, please, would you take this to somebody else? And he's hoping that the guy's going to do it, which he does, because obviously we have it now. So he's scratching out on a couple pieces of parchment or whatever, etching out just a few thoughts 2,000 years ago that Paul wants to tell his spiritual son, Timothy. These are some last things that you need to know, Timothy. So this isn't just a, a pastoral letter, you know, so a pastor knows how to run the church and, and do stuff. This is for every single person that needs to live a radical life like Paul, hearing from him the last thing. So, The point of this book is, Timothy, you've been entrusted with this gospel. And this is a glorious gift. And you should be the kind of person that wants to then entrust it to others. Which means, every person in this room who's in Christ, that's the case with you. This isn't just some kind of, "Ah, I got something, maybe I can do something with it. I got a few other things going on in life, but once I get, you know, unbusy, I'll, I'll take this entrusted gospel and I'll do something with it. This is the most important thing that's ever been given to you if you're a believer. The gospel. You've been entrusted with it. Therefore, as a believer, you have to live your life in a way that shows that you believe that. And you're going to live this out. We've been entrusted. Therefore, we must go now and entrust others with the gospel. Telling them about Jesus. So this letter is written from a pastor. And it's easy to think because it's written from a pastor to a pastor. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus that it doesn't directly apply to me if you're not a pastor. But that's not the case. I want, I want to maybe even draw the line for you directly so you can hear it. Dads, you pastor your house. So in the same way that he's being direct to them and saying, you've been entrusted with the gospel, this is what it looks like. You're the pastor, teacher, uh, shepherd of your home. Wives, I mean, you're right there with them. You're, you're also told to shepherd these children you have. So this is for you. Roommates. Perhaps you've got a roommate who uh, needs for you to come alongside them and and trust to them the gospel in the same way. Or in your home or your neighborhood, uh, your brother, your sister, whatever. Every one of you has an easy application, a direct link, how you can read this and say, that's how it can go in my life. That's the way I can do it. Now, the main idea of what we're going to be looking at, as I said, we're in 2 Timothy 2, starting at verse 14, through the end of the chapter, through 26, that's what we're going to look at. Um, the main idea of what's going, to, what's going to be said here is that we are all, we are all called and able to be faithful teachers. Don't hear, don't hear elder pastor there when I say teacher. We're all called to be faithful teachers of the gospel. Every single one of us. Whether you feel like you're a teacher or not, here's the deal. In Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, The last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, when he looked right at him, he told him to go make disciples. So everybody here is supposed to go and make a disciple. That involves some level of speech. (laughs) You have to talk in order to do that. So therefore, when you're communicating, there's some level of teaching going on. You're, you're, You're instructing who Jesus is in some way to them. And as you're doing that, because of that, you are going to be called to teach. And not only that, able Now, that doesn't mean you have the gift of teaching and you're going to be an elder one day or you're going to be a pastor, you're going to have this massive ministry or whatever. Maybe it does. I don't know. But because you're a believer and you've been called 
And then you've also been given the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has been empowered by the Holy Spirit dwells in them. You are able then to be a faithful teacher, called and able. So the main idea of what we're going to be looking at here as we're talking about what does a faithful teacher look like? That's kind of the the idea of the text today. What does a faithful teacher look like? And when you hear that, don't think, well, I'm not the teacher of the church. Fudd, I hope you're paying attention. Like this this is for you, for every single person in this room. Um, we're going to be looking at three images or three illustrations or three characteristics, however you want to say it, of what a faithful teacher looks like in the text. Now, let's look at verse 14. I want to show you a couple things by introductory, and then we'll, we'll jump in. It says, remind them. So who's the them? Well, in the most immediate context of verse 14, the them is what we just read in 2 Timothy. Paul telling Timothy, who tell men, who tell men. So Timothy, remind them. All those them means they're Christians, okay? So we know that there's a reminding of the them that are Christians. What are we reminding? Of these things. The these things, as it's been taught to us by the past couple weeks by Chris, this is the gospel. So he's been unpacking in in many senses what Christ has done for them on the cross. So I'm going to say this every week, every single week. Every Christian needs to be reminded of the gospel as often as they possibly can. The gospel is not something that an unbeliever comes and gets and believes and says, okay, I've got the gospel, and now that I'm a believer, I'm going to move on to other things. Instead, the gospel is something that unbelievers come to in order to be saved and that Christians continually come to, reminding themselves of continually. Over and over, you'll see in the scriptures where Paul is telling Christians the gospel. You're like, why is Paul telling Christians the gospel? Don't they know how to get saved? Because the gospel isn't just how to get saved. The gospel is also, now that you're saved, continue living in what's been declared of you. Which is, you are now 100% righteous in Christ. If you are a believer, that's what's true of you. Jesus has now taken your place. All the wrath that you should have gotten, Jesus took. And all the perfection and righteousness that he had is now imputed into you. Therefore, as you walk in life and you realize, I'm such a failure. I sin all the time. But what's true of me, this is where we remind ourselves of these things. This is where we, quote unquote, preach the gospel to ourselves. What's true of me is that I'm in Christ and that he has forgiven me and that he has called me righteous and he has called me perfect. He has called me pure. So we have to, as believers, continually remind ourselves of those things. And so remind them of these things and charge them before God not to, be, not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. So we're to remind believers of the gospel. We're to remind ourselves the gospel every day. Um, And also, he's talking to a pastor here. He's saying, don't quarrel about words. This means don't have word fights. Don't have secondary um, fights about doctrinal things. Don't make secondary things primary things. Don't argue about revelation and equate that to the gospel. You know, sure, you can have talks about revelation, but that revelation, eschatology, you know, that kind of stuff, no one understands that. We don't understand. If you understand it, well, then you're awesome. But I don't understand it. and None of us really do, right? Because it's all in the future. So we don't take things like that and equal it or equate it to the gospel. The gospel's primary, and then there's secondary issues, which we don't quarrel about words. Certainly, now don't miss this, certainly pastors have to, if things arise in the church, confront them and talk about them. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. 
So, yeah, there's, there's a responsibility to the pastor to try to describe and understand the text and all those kinds of things. But we don't make secondary things primary things doctrinally. Now, um, Paul here is going to add to the imagery that he's been doing. In the previous verses, uh, in verses 3 and following, he has the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. So he's going to continue in that same kind of imagery here um, as we're going into verses 15 through 19. So here we're going to see three images of a faithful teacher. There's three images of a faithful teacher in these following verses to 26. The first image um, is this. The faithful teacher is to be an approved, unashamed workman. He is to be an approved, unashamed workman. So I've got a little dash there because approved means unashamed. Unashamed means approved. He's supposed to be both of those things, workman. When I hear workman, this is just random. I didn't say it first service, but anybody seen Lost? And uh, he found Roger Workman. Look, there's Roger Workman. That's not Roger Workman. He's a workman, Hurley. Anyway, um, so it has nothing to do with anything. But uh, so back here, we see no one saw Lost, so you're missing out on the best TV show ever. It's on Netflix. Go find it. The, the faithful teacher, well, probably don't. The, you'll veg out and spend a lot of time doing it. All right, anyway, the faithful teacher is to be an approved, unashamed workman. So as believers in the gospel... We're all called to be faithful teachers in some sense. And whenever we're all supposed to be called as a faithful teacher, what does that look like? What are some of the images that are supposed to be present in my mind as I think about myself as a faithful teacher? Well, the first one is that I am an unashamed workman. I am not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of the calling I've been given as a teacher. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. And as I'm not ashamed, I also, I work. Like, I go after it. So if you are a Christian and you've been entrusted with the gospel, don't miss this. This is what should be describing you, an unashamed workman. So if you're asking yourself, then give me some better understanding of what an unashamed workman looks like. Awesome, I'm glad you asked. Paul, he's so nice to us. In verse 15, he describes to us what a little bit of this unashamed workman looks like. So Still under number one, an unashamed workman. There's some distinguishing characteristics of an unashamed workman in verse 15. Look at this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. First, an unashamed workman is one that, look at those first three words, do your best. Do your best. An unashamed workman does their best. This is not giving it the old college try. This is not looking like the Gamecocks defense this past Thursday. This is like sweat. This is work. This, being a believer, the, this kind of um, unashamed workman doesn't mean I can just kind of say, well, however it works out, I'll kind of go after it. To, to grab Chris's analogy from a couple weeks back, um, when we're talking about the farmer, this isn't gardening, this is farming. Gardening is just a hobby that you'll do at your leisure. The calling of Christ on our life is not a hobby. Instead, we're the farmer. We're the heart. This is my livelihood. This means everything. I'm called to do this with my entire life, not make it a hobby and give Jesus some of my spare time. So we are supposed to do our best. This is sweat. Getting after it as hard as we can. Tony Marita commenting on this says, there's no room for slackers. Holy shoddy is still shoddy. So just because you're doing it for the Lord and it's holy, if you do it shoddy, it's still shoddy. And this isn't what we're called to do. As the unashamed workmen, we do our best. 
We don't give our leftovers to Jesus. He's our whole life. Sharing the gospel isn't a hobby that we have just kind of put on as some appendage to our life. Instead, sharing the gospel is our life. It is our life. This is what it means to be an unashamed workman that does his best. So an unashamed workman does his best. He doesn't just, the old college try, see how it works out. No, not only that, not do you do your, do your best, but look at this next phrase, to present yourself to God. So the unashamed workman primarily is God-centered, while others still receive the benefit, of course. His work and his mind and his worship and his thought processes are primarily to God. The unashamed workman is God-centered. Notice, you're presenting yourself to God. Surely, without a doubt, others are going to benefit from this. There's no question. I mean, think about what you're doing. Hey, person that doesn't know Jesus that will go to hell forever, here's the gospel. Well, I'm going to benefit by that by not going to hell and going to heaven forever. Okay, that's good. So certainly, unbelievers benefit from this, but our presenting of being an unashamed workman isn't primarily for them to love us and think we're awesome. Instead, we do it for God. All of our worship goes to Him. We're presenting ourselves as an unashamed workman to Him for the benefit of others. When you get that reversed, you get into crazy idolatry, fear of man, you get into a whole lot of mess. So as we are unashamed workmen, our work is primarily to God and the benefit of others. And here's the key. When you keep your focus God-centered and not man-centered, that makes the work sustainable. If it's man-centered, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you're, if you're banking on me to keep you sustained, I will fail you. I will fail you. Because I'm just like you. I'm a human that's fallen, that's weak. If you're banking on your spouse to keep you sustained, he or she will fail you. They make crummy, crummy saviors, your spouse. Jesus is the best savior you'll ever find. The only savior you'll ever find. And so you keep your focus God-centered for sustainability. Because in good times, when things are going well, you say, Jesus, is because of you. And when things are bad, you say, my only hope is you. And so as you're plodding through, being the unashamed workman, telling people about Christ, if people are getting saved, Jesus, thank you for saving them. You're awesome. If people aren't and it's a tough, rough patch, it's not fertile ground but rough ground, Christ, my only hope is you for to save them. And certainly it benefits others when you do it. So the unashamed workman does their best. The unashamed workman is God-centered. And don't miss this. This is, I would say, pretty important but I'm a pastor and I like the Bible and doctrine and stuff. But it says this, um, to present yourself as, to God as an approved worker who has no need to be ashamed, and here it is, rightly handling the word of truth. Unashamed workmen are accurate teachers. They rightly handle the word of truth. They do their best to say what the Bible says. Correct orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means Bible, correct Bible teaching. The opposite of orthodoxy is heterodoxy, you know, heresy. And so this is where the orthodontists get their, the orthodontists get their, their, their word orthodontist from orthodoxy. Orthodontists make things straight at a high price. I've got five kids with crazy teeth like me. Like, 
going to have to lose a lot of money getting this straight. But the idea of an orthodontist is they get their, they get their stuff straight. They get teeth straight. And that is what we're, that's the idea here. Correct orthodoxy. An accurate teacher is getting their doctrine straight. They get their teaching straight. They say what the word says. And whenever the word says something outside of their kind of preconceived categories. Now listen, I know you're, we all, you can't help it. You can't help it. You're going to come to the word with categories in your mind about the way things work. I get that. We all have that. It's impossible not to. But when that happens and the Bible says something contra to your category, then you have to show deference to the Bible. You don't, you know, lop it off. They, in, in seminary, my, my president at the time, he called it the, uh, the Waffle House theology. You, put, you pour it in, and when you put it there, uh, you close the little thing, and all the stuff that rounds off, that's kind of the stuff you don't like. You know, when you make a waffle, you know what I'm talking about? No one's looking at me like, what are you talking about? But you always got the little crusties on the outside. He said, that's, that's Waffle House theology. Whenever the things that you don't like in the Bible, after it finishes making, you just kind of cut it all off and you throw that down. I don't like that part. Here's the, here's the doctrine I like. This is the waffle of my choice. But forget all that other stuff that's in the Bible that I don't like. You just, Waffle House theology. You can't do that. You have to be accurate. The unashamed worker. The one that cuts the path straight and lets people see and know who Christ is. The unashamed workman. The one that does their best. And, and and knowing the Bible is hard work. I mean, it is. It's, it's difficult to study and know, but it's not impossible. Because if you're a Christian, why? God's in you. <laughs> like, he knows everything. And he resides inside of you. Holy Spirit leads you into truth. All these promises from John 14 and 16 of all the awesome things he'll do when you study the word. So these are the distinguishing marks of an unashamed workman. And... Just in case you're wondering, Paul even goes the extra mile and gives us some characteristics of what the, uh, or negative examples of bad workmen. If you keep going, he says it in verse 16 through uh, 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among the, uh, that just sounds gross, right? Among them are Hymenaeus, if you've got gangrene, I'm sorry. Let's talk too much. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting. When you see that upsetting, hear overturning. That's, that's a little bit more accurate. Overturning. They are upsetting, overturning the faith of some. So here's some negative examples. These are the neg- negative examples of bad workmen. The good workmen, they do their best. They're God-centered. they accurate teachers, bad workmen, they avoid solid exposition of the Bible for irreverent babble. They also, uh, they don't make godliness the goal of their teaching. Look at what it says in 16. Avoid irreverent babble for at least people to more and more ungodliness. The the bad teachers are trying to lead people into ungodliness. Um, So they avoid, uh, they don't make godliness the goal of their teaching. There's any number of things they can make the goal of their teaching. Whether it's just knowledge, in and of itself, like Edwards. I don't know if you know Edwards. I've been studying Edwards a lot. Um, but Edwards, 300 years ago, pastoring um, up in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Connecticut, those two areas. So whenever he was there, if you read, he wrote a book called Religious Affections. But the main idea, Edwards was brilliant. He was like a genius. He was insanely smart. He was very socially awkward. Um, but he, was, he studied 13 hours a day. He ate food so that he could, stu- at a certain level of food, so that he could study more. I only want to eat this amount of food, because if I eat more, then I'm tired. So I'm going to only eat this amount of food so I can study longer. Like, 
That's legit right there. So anyway, so without a question, this man loved knowledge. He was an intellectual. He's the most brilliant pastor, philosopher, apologist. I'm trying to think of as many accurate things of, of North America, of the United States ever. 300 years ago or so, 280, whatever. But he was also, he wrote this book called Religious Affections. So he had this amazing mix of intellectualism plus affections. So here, the bad workman tries to just make intellectualism the goal. But like, don't do that. You want to be as, as balanced as you can. Sure, we want to know God, but we want to have the proper balance of affections. That means love for, adoration of, worship of Jesus mixed with that. Bad workmen, just make it about knowledge. Bad workmen, just make it about moralism. Bad workmen, just make it about self-help. Good workmen, instead, they don't try to make ungodliness their, their goal, but godliness. Tony Morita says, Godliness is cultivated as the word of God is taught and changes people from the inside out. So there's a way to change. There's a way to pursue godliness. Think of it this way. From the outside, if you're watching someone's behavior, and that's it, and, and it's good behavior, you would say, oh, they're so godly. They're awesome. Look at them. Man, that's unbelievable. I wish I was like that. But here's the key. If they are white-knuckling in it and doing it on their own power, and they're just behavior modification, that's all that's going on, well, then that's really not pleasing to God. I mean, if all they're doing is altering their behavior because they want to look good and they're just doing it on their own power, that's not change from the inside out. That's just outward behavior change. But what we're saying is we want that outside, but because we want it as someone who's been changed by the word of God because of the gospel, then it looks like that. As he says, this is cultivated from the word of God. It taught, it's taught and it changed pe- changes people from the inside out. We don't want moralism or behavior modification that changes the outward behavior but never has inward change. That's just modifying your behavior. And listen, if you're good at that, you just got to realize you are not fooling God. I'm not fooling God when I act that way. He can see straight through all that and knows my heart. So don't fool your brother or your sister or your mom and dad and think your life is great because... I mean, God knows, right? God knows. And so the bad workman just tries to um, have that kind of, they, they don't make godliness the goal of their teaching or they, don't, they also avoid a solid exhibition for a reverent Bible. They also just have wrong teaching like here with Hymenaeus and Philetus. These guys were preaching uh, incorrectly on the resurrection. It says they were swerved from the truth saying the resurrection has already happened. You're like, yeah, of course it has. Jesus died, resurrected, it's already happened. It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about for us. The Bible teaches that one day we also will have a bodily resurrection where we'll be in heaven, our souls, bodies will meet right there, and then all of a sudden put back together again, if you will, which is going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Your heavenly body is going to be incredible. You're going to be in shape and awesome, and you'll have hair again, whatever, um, and hair where you don't want it and hair where you do want it, whatever. So it's going to be awesome. But the whole point is, like, they were teaching that the resurrection hadn't happened yet, or it had already happened yet, and that kind of bad teaching, as it said, spread like gangrene. So, <laughs> I've noticed this. I've been in ministry. It's amazing how difficult and slow good teaching spreads, but how quick bad teaching spreads. Isn't it? It's amazing. Like, 
trying to preach the gospel to preach the gospel to yourself. You know, someone's been in the church for five years and they come and like, fine, I just got something. So as a believer, I'm supposed to teach the gospel to myself every day because then when I do, that's the power I have to walk in, that God's already declared me of the gospel. I'm like, yes. I said that like five years ago and every single week. But, you know, if someone says something crazy, all of a sudden it's just out there, you know. Some, I don't want to even name names, but, you know, the wrong teaching can get out there so fast, right? It's amazing. Wrong teaching spreads like gangrene. That means fast. And it seems difficult sometimes for good, solid teaching to spread. So that's a bad example of a workman. Wrong teaching spreading like gangrene. And then also a, a negative example of, bad, of a bad workman or a bad teacher is that it leads to people's faith being upset or overturned. That's exactly what it says there in verse 18 at the very end. They're upsetting the faith of some. And so the conclusion of this unashamed workman is, as it says, but God's firm foundation stands. That's the gospel. So the gospel is our foundation as an unashamed workman, as the good teacher. The gospel is our firm foundation. And it says, the God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. So praise God. The Lord knows he is good. He knows who are his. And then it says, let everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That means sin. That leads me right into my point number two. It's a perfect segue. It's like God wrote this Bible or something. Um, so, the, <laughs> so the second part is this. Here's the second one. Is, so we have the first one. The first image is that we're supposed to be an unashamed workman. Unashamed work men, woman. And then the second one is this. The, thir- the second one is that a faithful teacher is to be a clean vessel for honorable use. As it says, depart from iniquity. We're going to see a section here where Paul starts talking about what that looks like. Departing from iniquity. Verses 20 through 22. Let's, let's read that whole section. And this is all under the banner of the faithful teacher is to be a clean vessel for honorable use. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, there it is, the idea of cleansing himself as a vessel. So that's the clean vessel. Um, if anyone cleanses himself for what is dishonorable or actually straight in that, in that that's these things. The, the word dishonorable is not there, so I'll just read it correctly. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, uh, um, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So in this um, illustration, Paul is employing a metaphor onto this particular set of verses. And he's saying, you walk into a house, there's pots, there's pans, there's vessels. You walk into a house, we got like 25 uh, uh, pots and pans. We got all kinds of stuff. I got like 50 crock pots, I think. So you got all kinds of stuff, but that's neither here nor there. Um, sorry, baby. So anyway, you walk in there and you've got all kinds of stuff. And he's saying, in the great house, there's all these little, little uh, things. And all these things are used for different things. Some are kind of more important. Some aren't. So in verse 20, it says, now the great house, that means the church. In the church, you've got all kinds of vessels. You've got all kinds of people, uh, different gift mix. So here we're talking about believers. This is, this is strictly regarding believers. I know as you read Romans 9, if you're a, a, a thorough, thorough reader of the Bible, you're thinking to yourself, I'm sorry, Romans 9. As you read verse 20, it sounds like Romans 9. Some of the language of Romans 9 Now, in a great house, there are vessels of gold, wood, and clay, but some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. That sounds like Romans 9. In Romans 9, I think it's talking about believers and unbelievers. 
I don't think that's the case here. In this particular case, I think it's talking about believers. And inside of those believers, it's talking about good teachers that are clean and honorable and bad teachers that are un- unclean. But they're all still believers. So you, you, we're well aware that that's, that's the case. So as it's saying, you've got inside the church all these different utensils, vessels of gold and silver and also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So there's good, clean, honorable teachers, and there's bad, unclean, dishonorable teachers. But Paul is being very charitable here and saying, but they're still all in the house. They're still all in the church. And even if you read Philippians 1, he still rejoices that the gospel is being preached. Um, So anyway, back to the text. And he exhorts him here, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is, or cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honorable use. So we're supposed to cleanse ourselves from these things. What is the these things? Likely, referring back up to uh, 16 and following, the irreverent babble, the ungodliness, the spreading like gangrene, uh, but even after that, uh, fleeing from youthful passions, etc. So we've got kind of a uh, uh, both sides helping us flee from these things, these, these lists of things that I'm saying that are wrong. And if you do that, then you'll be an honorable vessel. So what we know is then, all Christians are to be faithful teachers, and what's true of us then is that we're supposed to be clean vessels for honorable use. This just literally means, as it says there at the very end of verse 20, departing from iniquity. Christians, your life is supposed to be patterned after departing from iniquity, because that's what's been declared true of you, that you are perfect, you are righteous, you are holy. Therefore, if that's true, the pattern of my life following that declaration of me when Jesus said that at my faith is that there should be a continual pattern in my life that when temptation comes to sin, I depart from it. Is that the case for you? If you look over 5, 10, one, years, months, whatever, how long you've been a believer. Does this seem to be the dominant pattern of your life? Fleeing from it. We're going to get to that in a second. Departing from iniquity. So we know as believers that we're supposed to be clean vessels. Paul, who wrote this, very generous to us, is going to give us some understanding then of what a clean vessel, three descriptions of a clean vessel It's right there in verses 21 and 22. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from from these things, he will be a vessel for honorable use. And here it is. What does that look like? He's set apart as holy. That's the first thing. That we are now righteous, not unrighteous. You may not think this is true. But for those of you who are in Christ, you are now set apart as holy. Next thing. It's right there afterwards. This is awesome. For those of you that are discouraged, who feel like you can't do anything for Jesus, you never make any treadway, like God can't use you, I've got nothing going on in life, especially when it comes to my spiritual walk and reaching people, look at this. You are set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. It does not matter what your gift is, how much or how little you conceive your gift to be. Because you're a child of God, don't miss this, you are, whatever your age, four or 84, useful to the master of the house. God specifically wants to use you. He set you apart as holy. 
He's also said that you're useful. Don't miss that. Don't miss that you're useful. I don't care that there's more people that are more gifted than you. We can all say that. Every one of us can point to somebody else that's more gifted that God should be using and not us. You're useful. There's a third thing that he says about us, though. Ready for every good work. I think that's important, especially that word ready. Ready for every good work. If you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 10, he said that there's good works set out before us that we should walk in them, and we kind of walk around, we're like, well, I read Ephesians 2, 10, that sounds like good news. God's got a plan for me. God's already planned out that there's good works set out before me, that I would walk in them. And so we kind of walk through life saying, good works are set out before me. Ephesians 2, 10, got that verse, got it. Like, there's all these kinds of things. But what this verse is supposed to try to drive us to is this. We're supposed to have a readiness about us to do the good works. Not just know that they're there. Oh, good works. Maybe one day I'll stumble into them. Like the ice bucket challenge. If someone literally pours it on my head, then I'm ready to do it. Like, oh, there it is. I found it. It's freezing. Like, instead... The good works are there for us, but the exhortation from this is that we're supposed to be ready to do the good works daily. What is it that you want me to do today, God? How can I do it? Because I want to be ready. I just don't want to have some knowledge that they're out there. One day I'll do them. Maybe I'll stumble on it and get lucky today. Instead, because we're holy, because we are useful, let's find ourselves ready every day to do these things. What can you do daily? To make yourself ready to do the good works. Not hoping that you'll just blindly stumble on it one day. Oh, I found it this time. Maybe in 20 years I'll find another one. No, no. like ready yourself every single day. The clean vessel is ready. God, what do you want? That's what I want to do. So the clean vessel is holy, useful to the master, and ready for every good work. So if we're looking at this and we're saying, okay... If that's what's true, how do I then become the clean vessel? Because FUD, and believe me, I hear you, feel the same way all the time. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. But I want to be that. I know that that's what God has declared of me. I know that God says that's true of me. And I want that to be what I'm walking in. I'm a mess. FUD, give me some, some idea of what that looks like tangibly. Well, I don't have to. Paul did. Awesome, Paul. It's all in verse 22. All. You only need to remember two words. Flee, pursue. Look right there. So flee, pursue. What does the clean vessel look like? He flees, he pursues. He does both. He flees youthful passions. Generally, this is thought of in some kind of sexual morality, but I think it can, can be broadened out into a lot of different things. Youthful passions. I mean, I remember when I was 20, I just made... <laughs> dumb choices. Flee dumb choices. Put that in a big category. It doesn't just have to be sexual morality. It just means all your bonehead decisions that young people make, flee those things. Like if you need some, some ideas of what that can look like, he says it in a little bit later on uh, in verse 24 where he says, uh, must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to everyone, able to teach, etc. So flee then, flee quar being quarrelly, being a quarreler. Um, that's hard to say, for me at least. Flee being unkind. Flee being harsh. Flee youthful bonehead decisions. 
Flee it. So if, if over here on this side of the stage is all the temptation of useful bonehead decisions and sin, etc., then I am supposed to make a Usain Bolt V-line as far away as I can from it, over, away from it. Now, when I run, I just don't run aimlessly. I just don't run away from that to wherever I can go. As I flee, I pursue. So if you want to know what a clean vessel looks like, you flee and pursue. You just don't flee to any place. Look what it says. Flee these useful passages and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. This is Jesus, right? This is words you can use for Christ. Pursue then righteousness, faith, love, peace. Pursue Christ. Delight in his finished work. Pursue Jesus with everything in you. A clean vessel, honorable, a good, faithful teacher that's clean, flees Youth being a child, when you thought like a child, you reason like a child, etc. 1 Corinthians 13. But now you pursue Christ's likeness. This is what it means. This is what a clean vessel looks like. Don't miss this. I want you to hear this. This is so important. I've been in ministry now for almost 20 years, and I've seen it happen now over and over and over. Neglecting. Neglecting. This isn't just for people that are in ministry. This is for you as a wife, as a husband, as a mom, as a neighbor, as a daughter, as a sister, as a son, neglecting the priority of being a clean vessel, neglecting the priority of being a clean vessel, the kind of person that flees and pursues, neglecting that priority will result in you losing the privilege of being used by God. I'm not saying forever, but to certain degrees and levels it will be. And I have seen it. I have seen people lose the privilege of being able to be used by God at great levels and dropping down to, you know, smaller levels. I'm not, saying that's, I'm not saying that's less than. I'm not saying that, you know, that's just terrible and how can you do that and you can't do anything. You still can. But why not pursue then the clean vessel so that you can be used by God at the highest levels that he's ordained? I want you to hear this, this quote by Spurgeon. This is for everyone that feels like me. Man, I got nothing. Like I stink at everything. Everybody's better than me. I have no gifting whatsoever. Hear this. Spurgeon's awesome. Hear this. But let one man once become really holy. That just means pursue Jesus. Like pursue Christ's likeness. And even though he doesn't have any giftings, watch this, or hardly any. But let one man become really holy even though he has but the slenderest possible ability. I think we're all identifying right now. I feel that's me. I got hardly anything. Everybody's better at everything than me. Let him become holy, and he will be a fitter instrument in God's hands than the man of gigantic accomplishments who is not obedient to the divine will or clean and pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. That's awesome. Your gift mix... That's not God's, like, insurmountable thing. Oh, if you just had more giftings that I could have given you. (laughs) That makes no sense, right? You pursue holiness, and you will be used by God astronomically. You pursue holiness. You be a clean vessel for him. And don't miss this last little verse there at the end of uh, 22. This is huge. This is huge. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Look at that along, notice that little phrase, along with those 
along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. That means you're pursuing a pure vessel. Fleeing and pursuing is to be done in community along with those. You're not meant to walk the Christian life as John Rambo out in the woods by yourself, all on your own with your little satchel and headband and arrows, taking on the world and sin by yourself. That's not it. I grew up in the 80s, and so I know like a lot of 80s stuff. That's why I reference 80s stuff here. Um, This is not who you're supposed to be. You will see yourself getting through fighting sin much faster if you're doing it along with others. We're not ashamed of the fact that we're sinners. We realize in community that we're all sinners. And as soon as I can get my pride bucket empty and show you who I am, and you can say, oh, I am that way too, and we all say, well, I need Christ, and you hold me accountable, then what would take me 20 years to fight through sin will take you much less time because it's supposed to be done along with others. Your fighting sin is supposed to be done in community, and you will find much greater success if you're doing it in community rather than by yourself. Much greater success. Because you just get over yourself. I'm a sinner. This is, these, these, these are the places that I need help. Pray for me. There's no reason to try to hide it. Wait, you're not kidding anybody. We all know you're a sinner. Because I'm one too. So get in community with people that you love, with people that you trust, with people that will walk beside you for a long period of time, etc. Yeah, all those things. Name all the parameters, but, 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 but. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But you got to do it with people. you got to do it with people. It's always meant to be done with people. Pursuing this clean vessel is always supposed to be meant. So that's the second image. The first image of a faithful teacher is that he's an, an unashamed workman. The second image is that he's a clean vessel. The third image is this, is that he is the Lord's servant. You can see it right there in 24, the Lord's servant. So let's read this, these verses and get an idea of what he's saying here. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. Let the Lord's servant, but and the Lord's servant must be, I'm sorry, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. That look at that, correcting his opponents with with uh, with gentleness. He's not destroying his opponents; he's correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's amazing grace that he's showing. Um, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by the devil to do his will. So the third image of this faithful teacher is that he is the Lord's servant. Now, look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now, he's talking to a pastor, and so he's not saying, this is not an exhortation to avoid all disputes. Pastors can't avoid all disputes. They have to shepherd the flock. They have to um, identify heresy and, and teach the people, etc. But it is an exhortation to just ignore the ignorant, foolish ones. Right? Ignore the ignorant, foolish disputes. Be wise as a pastor. Know which one's which. And, and serve your people well. So don't have, have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies. Because they just breed quarrels. But gospel issues, you protect the flock on that. You protect the flock on gospel issues. Somebody's arguing about eschatology, you just tell them, hey man, it's hard to figure out, dude. Hard to figure out. So keep going. Verse, verse 24. And I think this is the most important part. Um, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. 
but kind. Notice this. He's supposed to be kind. So keep that word kind. Another idea here is gentle. Kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring with everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So in the theological world, we call this an inclusio. Now, in seminary, what does inclusio mean? It just means bookends. So we got bookends or an inclusio of kind and gentleness and kind and gentleness. That means that the Lord's servant then is to be his primary condition of his heart, the primary dominant personality that this Lord's servant has, this faithful teacher has, is gentleness. He's gentle with his people. He's gentle with his kids. He's gentle with his wife. He's gentle with his neighbors. He's gentle with whoever it is that you are put in a position to kind of be a faithful teacher towards, roommate, whatever. The primary condition of your heart towards them is gentleness. Notice how he, he does it. He corrects his opponents with gentleness. He doesn't Mike Tyson them. He doesn't try to knock them out right out. He, he correctly comes to them with gentleness. He loves them. He wants to be patient. He endures things with them. He's gentle with them. And here's the goal. What's the goal of that? Why would he do that? The goal then, watch what it says. Because correcting his plans with gentleness, right there in the middle of 25, watch this. God may perhaps grant them repentance. They might come to Christ because of not just your argument, not just because you know the word well, not just because you explain the gospel well, but because of your gentleness. So the goal then is this, that they may be granted repentance, they may be led to a knowledge of the truth, as it says in 25, and they'll start doing the will of God, as it says in 26, not the will of the devil. So that means for the faithful teacher, the Lord's servant, our goal then is not to win the argument just, but to win the soul. We don't want to just win the argument. And be an arrogant jerk and show that we're smarter and better and we got the answer and they don't have it because we know Jesus and they don't and we're so much smarter. It's not to win the argument. The faithful teacher, the Lord's servant, wins the soul. They want people to come to know Christ and this will be because of they have a primary condition of their heart, the Lord's servant, is gentleness as they interact with people. They're gentle. So as you hear these things, if you're like me, you hear this and you're like, well... There's no way, Fudd. Like, those things are just, those things are hard. There's no way that I can be the unashamed workman, working that hard and being that unashamed all the time. There's no way that I can be the clean vessel that's always fleeing sin and always pursuing Christ. There's no way that I can be the Lord's servant that is always trying to reach the souls and save the souls continually. That seems daunting. That seems overwhelming. That seems impossible. Exactly. I don't, I don't disagree. So here's the good news. This is the best part. I've been, I've been saying everything I said just to get to this. So if you've ignored me the whole time, get yourself some coffee and wake up. Here it is. Jesus is those things already for you. Don't miss this. Jesus is the, he has done these things perfectly. Jesus is the unashamed workman that teaches with all authority and stands now before the Father with no shame declaring over us, therefore is thou no condemnation for those who are in Christ. At the right hand of the Father, saying, those are mine. Jesus is already the unashamed workman. Jesus is already and was the honorable vessel. He was perfect. He was, because he was perfect, set apart as holy. And he is the one that actually came to rescue sinners. And because he was obedient all the way to the end of the cross, now we are made righteous. Jesus is also the ultimate Lord servant. 
He's always gentle. He's always humble. He's always, as it says in Matthew uh, 11, 28, 29, 30, inviting you into his rest, this great gospel rest. Come to me, for my burden is light. My yoke is not weary. And he'll give you rest. He's always gentle. He's always humble, serving us by giving his very life for us. And so the good news is when those things seem daunting and impossible, Jesus is already those things for us and has died on the cross for those things now to be true of us. So for those who are in Christ, these things are true of you. You can be. You can be the unashamed workman. You can be the honorable vessel. You can be the Lord's ultimate servant that wins souls, not just arguments. Because Christ is those things for us. Awesome. I mean, Jesus is just incredible. The only way you'll ever be the faithful teacher, hardworking, clean, not sinful, gentle, soul winner, is because of the gospel. It's because of the gospel. Brings us all the way back to verse 14. That's why we remind ourselves of these things. That's why we have to hear the gospel every day. So when you're overwhelmed, when you think it's impossible, you think this calling's too much, you're called and you're able, and you've been given the gospel, and you can do these things, of course you're going to fail. Man, I fail all the time. All the time. That's, that's what the gospel is. Even in your failures, you're forgiven. Completely. And God's not like happy with you whenever you're better at 70. He couldn't be any more in love with you than he is right now at this particular age you're at, as unsanctified or as unholy as you think you are, because he has already declared you holy. That's incredible news. The gospel is amazing. So let me conclude then with a couple of questions. As you hear these questions, <laughs> don't forget everything I just said about the gospel, because these questions then are going to be things you can do. Hey, these are things I can do. Didn't he just say everything's already done by Jesus and everything? Why are, you, why are you making me feel convicted with these questions? I'm not. Don't forget the gospel. Read verse 14 again. Remind yourself of these things. Let me ask you some questions then on each one of those three points. Unashamed workman, honorable vessel, Lord servant, gentle, winning souls. Unashamed workman, in your life, are you satisfied at Remedy Church with just the elders and the community group leaders being the only spiritual workmen for Remedy? Or are you wanting to jump in and play a part with that too? Are you satisfied with just the community groups and elders being the unashamed workmen? Doing all the heavy lifting, doing all the studying, getting into the word, knowing what the good teacher does, not worrying about what it looks like. Because remember, as we were looking at these two teachers, there was no neutral teacher. He was the good teacher or the bad teacher. There was no neutral teacher. That doesn't exist. If you're a neutral teacher, not doing either one, you're just a bad teacher. So are you satisfied with the elders at Remedy and the community leaders are doing the primary heavy lifting of the unashamed workmen? Are you going to jump in and do it too? Now, I know the order of the church. They, they're supposed to do the primary lifting. I know. But how about you say, you know what? I do want to do that. I want to do that. I want to be the unashamed workman. Second question, in regard to the clean vessel. What practices in your life do you need to flee? And how are you at pursuing Christ? How are you doing at that? Again, don't forget, I said everything I'm saying in these questions applies to the gospel, all right? I, I want you to remember what Christ has done for you. 
But how are you doing it? Fleeing sin. Fleeing it. I've done, I think now, I, I don't look this, I'm 40. I've done now, I think 25, 25 premarital counselings. 25 premarital counselors for people that are going to get married. And as I've done them, this is Christians that are in the church, that know the gospel, that believe in Jesus. Okay? So we're talking about like from a secular standpoint. Those are the cream of the crop when it comes to ethics, morals. In those 25 couples that I've done, I would say 95% of them are struggling with uh, being physical. Very few weren't. Very, very few. So never, ever think to yourself, ever, well, I don't need to flee. I've got that down. Just like me, every single one of us, we all have to flee sin. There's temptations that are bombarding on you, and you are not the Mike Tyson of, of Christianity that can knock them out. You, you, just like I, all have to flee and pursue. So if that's the case, how are you doing then at fleeing sin and pursuing Christ? What would be your grade, A, B, C, D, F? Why would you not make it an A plus? I know it's all based on Christ, but why would you not? Certainly he's worthy. Last question. Out of gentleness, do you seek to win arguments or souls? Out of the overflow of gentleness that we're supposed to be as the Lord's servant, are we striving after winning souls? Or just winning arguments. Or even worse, not doing anything. Not winning souls or arguments, just not talking to anybody about anything. Certainly, we all have places, as we've heard through this sermon, that we can improve on. My goal is not to convict you. My goal is to, as we all hear these things say, thank you, Jesus, that you declared me righteous. Yes, I want to walk and worship for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to make strives then in my sanctification as you work with me and I work with you to go and be more Christ-like. I want these things in my life. So as we go into a time of worship, as we go into a time of response, we try to put an ample time of music here at the end of the sermon so it's not just like we sing a half a chorus and you're at it, Bojangles. Like what we want then is for you to have some time. If we've heard from God, if God spoke to me, I don't think a half of course in 15 seconds of me singing is enough time to think through everything and all the implications, all the ramifications, all the applications, all the conclusions I'm supposed to make. So we try to give us some space here. You've got time here. You can sit, think, and read and pray. You can stand and just worship. However the Lord is speaking to you right now in this time of worship, listen, rest in the gospel. Rest in the good news that's already been declared of you and then think about these things and say, where can I work hard? Where can I kill sin? Where can I win souls? And let's stand and give him, Christ, all the glory for being our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, be with us now as we sing. I pray that you would be with us now as um, we reflect on this response time. And for those that need to think on you more and pray, Lord, I pray that you would be um, in their life now and lead them. I pray for those that are just so enraptured with your glory and grace that they would stand and sing out to you and give you all the glory that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.